Hairbring Comedy Presents! Over the past two decades, I have worked with artists of varying genres. Music, comedy, theater, dance, and more. It has been my observation that while each has its own systems and specificities, they are all relative. Art itself is relative to the observer. As the audience, our appreciation is influenced by our individual perspectives. For artists themselves, motivations and measures of success are just as conditional. In this series, I will be speaking with working class entertainers and artists. We will highlight the unique aspects of their crafts while, hopefully, proving my theory that it is all pretty much the same at their roots. My name is Isaac Landford, and this is The Art of Relativity. On this edition, I am sitting with comedian Scott Long. Scott, thank you for sitting down. I feel most podcasts are best sitting down. True. I, I see Pat McAfee feels differently whenever I see the videos of his. It seems he's always standing aggressively while he's podcasting. Like that's radio. I know oh, a few okay. radio yeah. that do that. It's, it creates a different energy, but it is is very macho. I, I'm not wearing a tank top. <laughs> not showing was, guns. Isaac, can I tell you, if you don't know who Pat McAfee is, some of your uh, nerds don't know who he is. Sure. But he was the, uh, he played for the Colts for a long time. He was a very good punter. And uh, I'm friendly with Pat. And uh, the only time I ever got upset was when the sports writer for the Indy Star said that Pat McAfee has got to be the funniest person in the state of Indiana. <laughs> and uh, he had seen him do his second show. Mm -hmm. uh, and I told that guy, Pat McAfee, I was a punter in high school. As a punter, I am like Pat McAfee to his punting. He is comedy <laughs> is to my comedy. Yeah. It's, it, so, but he's he's very good now. But that, that was kind of insulting. Sure. And uh, it's kind of like uh, Nouveau when Nouveau would pick the funniest funniest person of Indianapolis. Yeah. And. Uh, Ms. Pat and uh, BT and maybe me uh, weren't even on the thing. Sure. And quite frankly, I'm not sure there's hardly a funnier person on the planet than BT. And uh, Ms. Pat would kick your ass if you told anybody <laughs> that she wasn't the funniest. And uh, I've only been here for 30 years. That's how we start this podcast, right? I have done yeah. comedy for 30 years, Isaac. That was your first question. Now go. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's funny about those those best of things is that it's it's one of those frustrating things when you understand the inside of it. That I mean, this is not about celebrating your community at all. This is about selling ads and subscriptions and whatever else. And it's business. That's fine. But to the public, they don't understand. And of course, having the guy who was the punter for your very good local sports team would push a lot more issues than a comedian that not as many people in the local community know who they are. A hundred percent. And I, that's, I agree. it's fine, but it's fucking it's, it's, frustrating. <laughs> okay. so, so you have a lot of probably younger comics that would watch this. And sure. that is one of the first things you have to learn in comedy is, not a meritocracy. 
Um, <laughs> just so you know, and remember that, um, and it can work differently for a lot of young comics who are often more hipster and more this and that. Um, the local critic probably is on board with their comedy. Yeah. But then they're mad that the comedy club in uh, Greenwood isn't bringing them down there. Yeah. But that club <laughs> knows that their comedy base wants somebody that might have a song with a banjo in their comedy. Yeah. And you just have to understand, you know, there's a, there's a reason why pavement doesn't play county fairs, but Travis Tritz had two songs back in 1993 and I still see his billboards all over the country. So you have to have perspective that uh, just because you're good at this doesn't mean that you're going to be successful or make money at it. Is that too dumb? dumb? No, no it's right on to, and I think that it's so important for, I think any artist, but if we're talking specifically in standup to understand that the club's not booking you. Okay. You're not getting booked at the club. Are you making any adjustments to what you're doing to get hired at the club? That's a choice you can make. You can either say, well, I'm not a fit for that club right. and move on, or you can make some changes be like, well, I can adjust my act for this audience for the job and just make your, your choice. But you can't stubbornly dig your heels in and then be mad that the club isn't changing for you because you're probably not going to have that good of a time when you're there. If, even if they did hire you. Yeah. And I mean, the, the word club is a question even yeah. at this point yeah. with yeah. COVID, all that. I mean, I basically stepped out of doing many clubs about a decade ago, which if we're going to do it chronologically, like you would prefer, uh, <laughs> and I've already wrecked that. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, it, I, I don't do hardly any clubs because I could see things were shifting, you know, yep. that um, Mick Foley is more entertaining than a lot of comedians. But if he's taking the weekend at a comedy club, that's one less week Scott can work there, let alone the people that aren't as good as Mick Foley, you know, and then the people that are a sketch performer who doesn't really do stand up, but is doing it there or the soap opera actor, or this isn't a bitch session about comedy. It's more about being realistic. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the best thing you can do, I always give people, when people ask for advice uh, about comedy, I used to tell them don't move to Los Angeles or New York too soon because sure. you're not going to be ready you might not have enough money to move there. Uh, if any of these things feel like I'm insulting you, Isaac, at any time, please. <laughs> well, I waited 20 years for my move. I know so. <laughs> you waited. I know you waited. And I would tell make sure to have a family when you go there. So you have that added pressure. No. And, um, no, but the, the point is, I used to say, don't go those places. Go to Minneapolis. Go to... Austin, go to places that have cultivated a good comedy scene and then go to, to Los Angeles. Now I would just tell you, um, try to blast out a few viral videos, get yourself five good minutes and then go out there and try to learn it on your way because that's the old method doesn't work. 
trying to do clubs to build up. That's not happening anymore. I don't see comedians coming out of clubs. No. Most of the, I mean, comedy clubs are either people that went to Los Angeles and made it or New York, or they're the senior tour of comedy. Yeah. You know, where these uh, 40 to 60 year old uh, comedians still perform, have a moderate audience. Their audience loves them and they stay barely open. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just, it doesn't, doesn't work anymore. The old model. And that's cool. Um, I was, you know, like when I started in, when I was in my twenties, I probably started when I was 25 or 20, 25, I think I was like the hip comic of Indianapolis. Yeah. I was yeah. the cool comic. I was angry. I was Bill Hicks. I was, uh, you know, uh, Carlin S, Chris Rock, those were my influences. I was in your face and I had some success. I got to feature and be the middle act in a lot of comedy clubs pretty quickly. But as time went by, it's rare when you can stay cool. Sure. It's just, it's just, I mean, there are very few comics that, you know, a lot of times I'm sure 25 to 30 year old comedians look at me and go, lame, this dude is lame. Mm -hmm. And I would have felt the same way. I, I totally get it. That's why I don't get mad about younger comics where a lot of my generation, the Bill Burrs and the uh, Rogans and people that started when I started, um, they get angrier. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they do. about the younger comics. I try to explain it this way: when it when it was the '90s, I was listening to all the indie rock bands, and I enjoyed. You know, I was on the hip music, and it continued on early into the probably mid 2000s. But something happens to your brain when you reach 40 something or 50 something where all of a sudden classic rock starts to sound always better. <laughs> and that's how comedy was for us. Classic, our classic rock was the nineties mm -hmm. and the eighties and the 2000, early two thousands. So then when comedy really started changing and it didn't, we're like, Hey, we're smart too. Don't act like we're not smart, mm -hmm. but our comedy is not as, esoteric or whatever word you want to use. Uh, so look at us, realize that, think about your dad. I always tell young comics, who does your dad think is funny? And they're like, oh, well, I think this, this, and this. I'm like, yeah, okay. I'm your dad's age, okay? <laughs> I would make your dad laugh. If I was in a contest where it was the audience deciding who was going to win and it was you and me, he would have to suppress his laughter because he doesn't want to cost you the victory. Okay. It's nothing against it. That's his classic rock. I'm yep. his classic rock. Don't fight it. You made a lot of good points here and I, I want to mm. kind of touch on them. One of them being about how the old model barely exists. I, I always say like, I think Brent Terhune is like the anomaly in the past like decade and a half of someone who did come up through the club. 
because even the middle act now is very hard to get at your local club because the headliners bring a guy because he's having a hard time getting middle work. So you got a buddy who can headline. He's throwing you a bone, taking you on the road. And also, like, I'm always fascinated with stand-up comedy because it's really a very young art form in the way that we think about it. You're, you're basically talking about the very late 60s, but really the 70s, that, that the comedy clubs opened and this existed. And it almost yeah. imploded in the grand, like, scheme of time almost immediately. It had, like, yeah. a great 10, 12 years and then started a decline ever since. That's where I started. Yeah. I started right at the be at the beginning of the end. Yeah. That's how I would describe it. I was a journalism major in college, and I could see the wreckage that that was uh, becoming already in, like, 1990. And I'm like, I got to do something different, I think, because uh, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to get a good job in journalism. So then I went into stand-up comedy because that was hot. I mean, yeah. comedy club. I can remember seeing Brad Garrett on a Tuesday night. Before he had never remember he had never been on TV right. except winning Star Search. He, uh, but Bob and Tom at the time, which was not syndicated, had really connected with him. He sold out two shows on a Tuesday night. That's wild. It yeah. And I always say that I started right before I ever got paid in cocaine. I felt <laughs> like I just missed that. Um, I, I, there was no groupies, uh, uh, none of that stuff. But it, you're, you're right. It, it's a, here's an example of really, I never knew this until I did a cruise ship. Okay, so the first cruise ship I got on it was for Holland America. It was about six years ago. They hired me um, and it was like, I do one show and I make a lot of money for the whole week. Just one show there. It's mm -hmm. not like Carnival or something. It's just this big eight to 1,000 seat theater. And it's like, oh, you can do clean comedy and you have a good personality. We think you'll do well. You know, one night there's a, a juggler and one night there's a... <laughs> Uh, Vegas, you know, music show kind of thing and a magician. And then there's me. So I get up and I ate a horrible death. <laughs> I had gotten on the cruise ship in Vancouver and I'm like, I, I just, I don't understand what happened here. Then I found out everyone that leaves the Vancouver place is from Europe Asia or Canada. <laughs> okay, so first off, they don't get any connection to any references to Target yeah. or, uh, you know, uh, Marco's Pizza or any, you know, I mean, I know how America is and some places have things, but none of those connected. And that's not my whole act. But then the bigger <laughs> thing, your point I never considered half the ship was Australians they take off like two weeks at a certain time of year and you're like Australians they're like Texans in the middle of the ocean they're fun that's where Rupert Murdoch came from I mean come on 
they, these were all like 70 year old Australians. They were all retirees, you know, 60 to 80. Stand up comedy did not happen in Australia till about 10 years ago. Yeah. 10 years ago. There was no like stand up. And it's still not something that they had ever experienced. It would have been like someone that's 100 years old trying to understand what stand up is, you know, in America. Yeah. So I learned it. It was like, wow, these people have no concept of even the understanding of stand up. The the because everything they knew from comedy was like um, Paul Hogan, the crocodile. Yeah. You know that yeah. was, yeah. you know, Benny Hill reruns. You mm-hmm. know, it's all like slapstick and this and that, and so it was crazy. They just didn't even understand it. I was I had a great time sitting with them by the pool or talking them at the dinner table on the cruise ship. Uh, until I did my show and then I hid in my room the rest. <laughs> uh, but I learned, I'm like, why the hell did you put me on a ship where they don't even understand stand-up comedy? And I, it's the first time I've done it. Oh yeah. We probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, and then the, the next time I did it out of Seattle and killed. So, and it was, here, here's the other funny part. The, uh, this was six years ago, the, the second in command for entertainment for um, Hall of America. And they're an older people cruise ship. They're not uh-huh. the party ship. They're kind of the old people. He says he had been like in a band before. And then he took, he's like, man, you're like my favorite guy. You're like the Bill Hicks of cruise ships. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, he would be so insulted by ever hearing that. But that was the nicest thing anyone could have said, because what that told me was I still had a modicum of edge. Yeah. Intelligence with my, you know, I wasn't just making jokes about the cruise ship. That's a whole different world. It's so weird. Like I've met comedians that used to be really popular in the the eighties and nineties. And you're like, happened to that person oh and they've been on a cruise ship for like 30 years it's it's weird now they haven't had a lot of luck lately right but uh <laughs> yeah but that that still makes the point that it's a new um it's a new thing did you read that book by is cliff something it's all about the history of stand-up comedy i can't think of the he was on uh mark Marin's podcast it's a great it's a great book and it goes all the way back into the vaudeville days and kind of explains the the history of how stand-up comedy kind of came to where oh, it I did. I don't know. Yeah, I I think it's called The Comedians or something. He's a he's a Canadian dude um, who put together this this book, but it gave me so much even more information about what um the whole yeah his name is clip it's a weird name nesteroff and he wrote a book it's called the comedians drunks thieves scoundrels and the history of stand-up comedy i have heard of this okay i'm I'm definitely going to check this out because that's right up my alley 
I like the, I like the history quite a bit. There's a good book called Comedy on the Edge: How Stand-Up Comedy of the 1970s Shaped America. That's a great book. book. I, yeah, I, I'm I'm big on the history of my job. I sure like pretty much nothing frustrates me when I meet a comedian. It, it really doesn't, except if they ask for free food and free drinks at an open mic. <laughs> and I know Isaac has busted his ass just to <laughs> happen. Yeah. Like I did this show where there was, was that your thing that was in Fishers? Yeah, it's a pizza place. Yes. And the guy gave us that? pizza. It was like spectacular pizza. Yeah. <laughs> the best pizza I've ever had at a venue that they had comedy. Yeah. They were giving the comedians it for free. At an open then, mic. Yeah, an open mic. <laughs> and then this guy goes, hey, do we get drinks for free? <laughs> and uh, I went off in like a five-minute tirade <laughs> on this poor kid. But you know what? I give this guy, ah, gosh, he moved to Arizona. Do you know who this guy is? He's kind, he's kind of funny. Uh-huh. Uh I can't think of the name of him. He, uh, but he kind of got the joke after I went after him. Yeah. And every once in a while on Facebook, he will make a comment about, uh, do they give you free drinks? So <laughs> he got it. He didn't just think old man, you yeah. know, waving his fist at, you know, uh, so that makes me mad. But the other thing that really makes me mad is when comedians don't put any effort into understanding their local scene, right. understanding if they go on a radio show, what is the radio show like? Mm -hmm. um, they basically just show up. Um, everybody's got to do a little networking in life. Sorry. Especially yeah. though, if you're doing a job that a lot of people want to do, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, with, the uh, current employment world that we live in, where everybody's got to help one and sign, probably don't have to network for any of those jobs. Right. But they never put a help one and sign outside of a stand-up comedy club. No, no, and what's crazy is that as the the club atmosphere has declined, there's just more and more comedians too. It's mm -hmm. like it's the worst supply and demand issue that's ever <laughs> happened. <laughs> It got close to that in the nineties. That's one of the, that was a big reason why um, it started falling apart. There was an oversaturation of the market, uh, especially on TV. There were people that were not even maybe quality feature acts that were on TV shows like evening at the improv and things yeah. like that, because they just ran out of people. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it was like if you created a new sport, you know, let's call it, let's say basketball, right. uh, basketball started. And then 10 years from then it blows up. Well, there's only 10 years of getting decent people at this. Yeah. And more people want it. It's, it's, it's like Hooters restaurants in, you know, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Maybe they don't have the kind of quality to, to be able to do a Hooters <laughs> restaurant. Maybe you don't have a Chippendales, you know, in, um, you know, Fort Wayne. Yeah. You know, maybe you cannot pull enough talent to do these jobs. <laughs> yeah. That's what was going on with comedy. 
Yeah. And, and it's going on now where they're, you're right. It's the worst supply. I mean, I know this sounds depressing. Uh, the <laughs> great part is you can do things creative on your own all the time. There was only one avenue, maybe two, when I started. Yeah. It was a comedy club. And then maybe you could try to write funny stories or something. But that was it. There wasn't anything else. And you couldn't write them online. You couldn't create a blog. You couldn't do a podcast. couldn't make videos. Um, it, it just was such a thin sliver. It was just the comedy club. That was the only way to do it. Now there's so many other avenues. I was just you know, take advantage of them, do as many creative things as possible. I've had four or five different jobs that in the past seven or eight years that had nothing to do or not a lot to do with stand up, but that skill helped other things. Sure. Have you heard of, there's a, a guy from Denver named Sam Talent who just yeah, wrote a book called Running the Light. Mm -mm. So he wrote a novel uh, called Running the Light. It's fiction. And it's about this comedian named Billy Ray Schaefer, who he's put him in the Denver 1980s comedy scene where he sure. wrote for Roseanne and like this stuff. Ah. And then it's modern day and it follows him on a week on the road. And it is the most accurate portrayal <laughs> of stand-up comedy I've ever read. Like it, I'll, have to, I'll have to definitely look that up. It you know, Bill Maher wrote a book called True Story. Okay. That was about the early, the late 70s, early 80s of stand-up, but it was a fiction. Uh-huh. Uh, but you could recognize probably the Seinfeld, and mm -hmm. you could recognize the Carol Leifer, and you could recognize a few different characters in it. Um, that book was pretty good when I read it in 1995. Yeah. But... It would just make me mad now. It would make it would just infuriate any young comic now because by them starting in the 70s, yes, it hadn't been established, but it was just the timing of it that couldn't have been more perfect. Almost everybody that started then got a shot, like a big yeah. shot. Yeah. Now you, you had to move to New York or LA, but you got opportunities and and some of them were great. That just happened, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, there was a lot of real crap that, <laughs> that came out of there. And, and people that got TV shows even and things yeah. like that in the seventies and early eighties. So the, the timing of it uh, is pretty amazing. Uh, I, the, Facebook has its problems, but I just posted today a memory came up from 11 years ago. I met in Toledo, Ohio at a comedy club there. And the owner of the club made a fortune. It was called Connections. He made, he started the club probably in the early 80s, one of the first clubs in the Midwest. And he had one in Lansing. He might have had it in a couple other markets like Toledo or Lansing. And, but by 11 years ago, the club, he had made his fortune. He didn't care. Mm -hmm. Still, the club was doing pretty good business, but they paid the comedians terrible. You know, you stay at a red roof in. Um, but the audiences from that memory still, it was still like, I have great memories that I lost, but through Facebook, <laughs> I had written down, you know, there was a soldier 
that had been in Afghanistan that was on like a month leave and he was leaving in two days. And I had like one of these magical shows that you have uh, where just there's a lot of the improv and your stand-up weave beautifully yeah. together and it's not hacky at all. It just feels like really creative. And he had said to me, he's like, dude, I so needed that. And he had said, um, I'm going to Afghanistan. It's probably the funniest. That's the hardest I've ever laughed. And in that same show, I had written that a woman had said, uh, she had a glum look on her face. And I'm like, what's your problem? And she said, you're not funny. <laughs> so uh, normally yeah. that would have really made me mad, but it was one of the best shows I had ever had. <laughs> and there's still that lady. Yeah. That one lady, that one guy <laughs> that just, they yep. just, I don't know why they're there. Uh, they lost a bet, you know, it's an office party and they're like, ah, oh, we got to go because I need to, you know, drink with my, uh, you know, workmates. That's what I like to do. But it was just kind of crazy that those kind of things could happen. And then the following show, um, I had some woman was on her bachelorette party and she's like, well, this is my second marriage. And I'm like, well, you're probably upgrading. She's like, no, my husband died like two years ago. And uh, early on in my comedy career, it would have just killed the show. But instead, I just beat myself up the rest of the show, how horrible I was, and just yeah. spoke <laughs> off the top of my head. Like, well, here's what's in my head. That's something that also makes me crazy when I see comedians. You coming out of more of the, an improv background, you learn that you use everything you can around yeah. you yeah. where stand-up comedians think I have to recite my act. Sure. That's not good. That seems totally inauthentic. If something crazy or bad happens, call it out, you know, rip yourself. Yeah. Well, um, take the you know, easy thing that's being handed to you. Like, yeah, make, like, like absorb the environment and ride the wave. Yes. It's, there's an work. energy. Yeah. There's an energy to it. So, um, I mean, I really still like what I've do, I'm doing. I've done it for 30 years. Yeah. Um, but it, it evolved and it changed and my life changed. Um, I was a very R rated act. There was myself and another comedian. We played all the clubs in the Midwest pretty much. And, you know, and we always did great, but we made the same as everybody else. We had no, no drawing power. Right. You know, we did, it was, we'd sell 30 more tickets and we, we still didn't make any more money. And that was just kind of the model in the two thousands. Mm -hmm. um, and then the nineties, it's just like almost everybody gets paid the same except for maybe five to 10, you know, big acts that they would bring in. Yeah. And they pretty much made more money off of us than the big acts sure. because people just showed up to watch comedy. So I'm, I'm doing really well with that, but I'm not making any money and I'm, I'm gone and I have little kids all of a sudden and my daughter uh, diagnosed with autism. And this like, well, I had this David Tellish type act, yeah. which didn't, and I wasn't like I could insert that comedy, you know, into the David Tellish act. Right. And I'm not saying I was David Tell, please not. But I'm just saying I had a lot of 
kind of smart, dirtier jokes. Um, They weaved together. It was fun. And they weren't, it was not storytelling. That was not popular uh, in the clubs. People didn't have the attention spans for it, maybe, or they hadn't been trained for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So ultimately, I had to make a choice. Am I going to continue to do these clubs or, and just do this act? And it didn't seem authentic. I mean, like David Tell had to change, you know, he was killing himself trying to drink with everybody that had watched his show on comedy central. And he realized I can't do that, but I, you know, I still going to have the same type of comedy, which is, as good a joke writing as anybody's ever done, but you have to kind of change it. It doesn't look good on someone who's in their forties or fifties. The party comic, like Burt Kreischer maybe is the only person I know that can do that at an older age, Mm -hmm. but he also figured out, you know, four years ago or something, I'm going to take off my shirt the whole show too. Yeah. (laughs) Then it makes him, he makes him the crazy guy at a football game that's got his shirt off. Yeah. Uh, and it totally works for him. But so how was I going to write a new act and try to switch? Yeah. Um, because I was so used to doing this other style, even though I always was putting in probably 15 new minutes each year. So I went to the French festival in Indianapolis, you know, French festivals happen all over the country. Sure. And I'm like, I'm going to workshop this into um, a show that hopefully maybe I can take and do in fundraisers and do something different. Maybe I'm still going to have to do my club act here. And, and it was the most rewarding thing I've ever done creatively because it was, I don't know, if it was 15 minutes long, 35 minutes of it was funny, but 15 was right. And as a comedian, it's really scary to do anything serious mm-hmm. when you're used to the beats, especially the old days of comedy, not so old, but decades past when you're like a bang, bang, boom, mm-hmm. a bang, bang, boom, you know, you, whatever you wanted to have so many, jokes in a certain amount of time it was more math yeah uh and then all of a sudden i'm talking seriously about things and all this and it was so rewarding but i had to do it at the fringe festival they're accepting 10 years ago that was the most accepting place you could go there was a warm embrace around you Stuart huff who's brilliant absolutely comedian who's the greatest performer i think you could ever see at a fringe festival sells out every show deservingly. So he's so gutsy. He would workshop his friend's show at the comedy clubs. Yeah. Uh, I am not gutsy. (laughs) Not only did I not want the rejection of that, but also um, I did have three children, you know, and a wife and a crop in the field and whatever. Yeah. So I did it the opposite way. I'm like, uh, I'm going to workshop this at the fringe and then bring it to the club. Yeah. And uh, my fringe show was nowhere close to as good as 
Stewart's, but it was still good. Mm-hmm. And it was still inter- more entertaining than most fringe shows, at least 10 years ago. And it enabled me to have that opportunity to bring in this whole new show. But I lost fans who was transitioning, you know, sure. and, and I could never blame anybody. Even my brother-in-law, he was like, <laughs> oh, I liked your uh, old dirty act better. Sure. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I get it. Uh, probably I do too. In some ways it's got maybe a little bigger laughs, but people all of a sudden now are feeling some other things that they maybe didn't usually feel. And uh, I was all of a sudden more memorable. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I need to just take this somewhere else. So it's, it's just like, who's your biggest idols when it comes to comedy, not stand up or whatever, who are your, do you have, I mean, we're going to do the easy Mount Rushmore. Do you have four? Yeah. uh, I don't know if I have four. I think like the ones that have had the biggest impact on me were, Andy Kaufman is first and foremost. And then I grew up in the era when Conan O'Brien was the, was my King of late night. Yeah. And then I was really into that nineties. alt, like the David cross type stuff. That's really my big influences. Comedians of comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I wanted to ask you too. I'm sorry because I know you're you're probably asking me that question for a reason. But... No, I just, just okay. Uh, I'm just curious, and those knowing your performance style and the way your brain thinks does make total sense. Yeah, and it it does lead me to what I wanted to ask was, you know, where you've gotten now, where you've done the fringe and you have a family and and you're you know, uh, thirty years into the career. When it was the 90s, it, you started like probably what, 90, 91, 89, something like that? I started in 91. Okay. So, so it's 30 years back. Yeah, that's wild. I just hit 20 this year. It is wild. Yeah. Uh, so when it's the 90s, though, you're doing it in a time when the sitcom thing was still a reality. Not as much as the 70s and 80s, but like Drew Carey, Brett Butler, like Titus, like these people are getting shows still. Yeah you're working the same club circuit as these guys, but you're also that it's so funny. What was called alt comedy. Then nobody thinks about it. That is alt comedy. Now, when you're just talking about Dana Gould, that's alt comedy, you know? Uh, but that's happening at the same time. Did you feel the pull in either direction back then to like, Oh, I should move to the coast and try to do this or, Oh, I should like talk about my personal life and do more storytelling like these uncabaret and, uh, the, the, I forget the New York show that was running at the same time, but like, did you feel those pulls either direction back then? Um, okay. So in the nineties and actually the early nineties was the peak probably about 95 was the peak of them looking for comedians to be, I mean, you know, people like, you know, I mean, Greg Geraldo got his own show and he was, he was not, the show was nothing like his standup again. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't fit. I mean, Gaffigan got a show. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the early one, I mean, and then all these other people were getting them too. So because of, Tim Allen and Brett Butler and Roseanne and Seinfeld and Paul Reiser. I mean, these were five of the top 20 shows 
in probably five of the top seven sitcoms. Yeah. And Ray Romano got a show. And so that was all happening in the nineties. I did. I just never really wanted to be a TV star. Um, I was acting uh, in general, anything you were interested in. Yeah. No, it was weird. I wanted to like write for a TV show. I would have liked to have written for a TV. At least I thought I did. Um, But so there was that. I was in the middle of trying to work every week of the year Mm -hmm. doing stand up. And I basically was doing it everywhere, but the coast. I mean, I would do it in Arizona and New Mexico and Montana, you know, North Carolina and Florida. I mean, everywhere, but probably New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston. Yeah. Because there was such a surplus of comedians there. Sure. I just wanted to be a comedian at that time. Then um, the other part of this was I could have moved. I had a couple other people that did that thought I should have. I never thought I looked like an actor or anything like that. And now I look back at some video of myself and I'm like, Jesus, dude, you were like really handsome. I, don't, I had like a stretch. There's like some video of me in Louisville, Kentucky at a open mic that was the open mic would sell out. There'd be like 200 people, but comics from all over the country would come. to this. I mean, like mm-hmm. Tig would be there when she yeah. was starting and all these different big comics would come there because this guy named Tom Sobel booked about 30 weeks a year right. at the time. Uh, so people would come down there. So there's this video that just surfaced like last year and I'm looking at myself and I'm like, Holy cow, I should have gone out there. I probably would have done well because of my look or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted, but I didn't have that confidence yeah. or think of myself that way. I'm not a good actor. I'm just, I'm just not, Mm -hmm. I'm not terrible. Uh, but I never really wanted to say other people's stuff. Sure. That's a problem for me. Uh, I really just, as you've seen during this podcast that I've totally hijacked and taken (laughs) away from you. I'm here every episode. That's so it's fine. (laughs) It's probably not been fun for you because I've just constantly (laughs) set my own agenda during this thing. Um, uh, like I, you could have just, you could have walked away at times and still <laughs> maybe even noticed you were there. Like, uh, how I would describe this was I didn't have an interest in being an actor. I didn't want to be a sitcom star. Uh, sitcoms, a lot of them sucked, truthfully. Then. They always do. I mean, it's a pretty well, low art form. In a lot of ways. I mean, the sign, you know, if I could have had Seinfeld or if I could have been part of you know, everybody loves Raymond or something that was actually well done, but most mm-hmm. of them were terrible. This one comedian that was famous guy, he comes up to me and he's like, Hey, the guy that did home improvement, he's, uh, he's looking at doing a show with me. And I'm like, well, I don't know how you could, your, your life, you're such a degenerate. I don't know how he could <laughs> show you on regular TV. And he's like, and he tells me to fuck off. And then he's, He's like, well, you know, uh, I, I don't even care what they do. I just, you know, uh, I, I just want to have a TV show. And I'm like, yeah, that's, 
he's like, don't you want to do that? Everybody wants to do that. I'm like, I got to tell you, if my life was so lame that they could actually base my life on a sitcom from the eighties <laughs> or nineties, yeah. I, I would be depressed with my life. So I don't have a great answer for it. I should have, um, by the time my big Hollywood moment was 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, I was writing the comedy sketches for Frank Caliendo on the NFL pregame show. Uh, I had done it for probably eight years at that point, seven, maybe seven, maybe less, maybe five, but it was the Super Bowl sketch, which a hundred million people saw. Yeah. Like, they're live. 10 million people see that at right. the time. 100 million saw it. It got huge, great reviews. The New York Times loved it, said it was the best part of the whole pregame show. And it was mostly something that I had written with Frank. And this big manager at the time, who was Dane Cook's manager and had been Chappelle's manager until like the year before and was Tracy Morgan's manager and was uh, unleashing Whitney Cummings in the next year. He was the guy. Yeah. And he says, I want to meet with you in about um, a month. Uh, I want to look at some of your scripts. I had a script at the time that I had written, which was about the porno industry, but it was more like Larry Sanders Okay. where it was like the behind the scenes of it. Yeah. Not really the porno, but I knew that the nudity, which would get ratings on HBO or Showtime, wouldn't be gratuitous because mm-hmm. it's all part of the show. Yeah. It wasn't like Dream On or something like that. Where <laughs> it was totally gratuitous. So I was really I was really happy with this script. And I'd written about five episodes and, and it was really followed the arc of like a female porn star who was pretty bright, but kind of got herself in this business. And the only thing left that she had not done was anal sex. And she did not want to do that, but that's all anybody wanted her to do anymore. Cause she was used up. It was like, move on. That's the only thing anybody wants to see from you. So it's a weird thing, but okay. Uh, so I, I get it. Well, yeah, it was called love in all the wrong places, which was <laughs> <laughs> so there was, there, it, it was good. It was good. It was smart. You know, there was uh, a dumb porno guy who would never sleep with his own girlfriend because he was saving himself for work, you know, <laughs> things that you just don't yeah. think about, yeah. you know? And so that was it. So I go there with this script. He liked that script. I got in like the best shape of my life because it was uh, 2003 when Dane Cook was taken over with his tight t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was a very, very fit time in stand-up comedy. And uh, we're having this meeting. And he says, how old are you? And I guess I was probably 39 or yeah. 38. And he's like, um, well, you got to move out here. Um, you know, I like this script. I want you to work with a guy that's a showrunner that's done a couple other things with it. I mean, this is the dream come true, right? Right. Sure. While you're moving out there. Right. 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 He's like, I'm working on a new uh, uh, reality show. And this was when reality shows were new. Mm -hmm. 
and um, where there's going to be a bunch of comedians that live in a house. And I'd like you to try out for that. And he was telling me about it. I'm like, well, that sounds like the worst show ever. Yeah. It was called Last Comic Standing. Yep. And Intimately aware the of the show. <laughs> yeah. The first year was actually was horrible. Like, because there was like five comedians you've never seen since. And then there were five other comedians. I don't know if I'd have got on the show or not, but um, my daughter was going to be born right during the time that last comic standing was going to be shot. And I'm like, I can't do that. I just, I can't do that. My wife and I had tried for like four or five years to have a baby. Um, you know, I'm 30, I guess I probably would have been 37. Okay. 37. Okay. At this point. So, um, or 36. And I'm like, Oh, you know, I can't do this. And I'm sorry. And I know my wife doesn't want to move to Los Angeles. No, I realized that people would have cut off body parts to have this meeting, let alone have these opportunities. And I really doubt hardly any of this would have gone anywhere. Um, probably would have helped me in the stand-up clubs. Cause I maybe would have made last comic standing and lost in the first or second week, but I would have had a good six month run of making some money. And a lot of those people, that's what they had. And then they never, they, they, they couldn't headline a club after five years after that. Right. I don't know how it would have impacted my life, but these two things were there and I turned it down because I knew my wife had no interest in going there. We had just moved into a pretty nice house in Los Angeles. It wouldn't have been that nice. No. I had to make that choice and that wasn't my dream. And I kind of was living my dream at the time, just playing comedy clubs. And so then he has a meeting with me like six years later. And he was a dick the whole meeting to me. And everything he said made sense, though. He's like, what are you, 44 now? I'm like, yeah, 43. What? It's like, uh, you know, you're kind of too old to be coming out here for what you want to do. Mm. Not you're not too old to do like it's changed now in the 2000s and the night uh, when friends happened, everybody yeah. had to be beautiful, right? Everybody, mm. everybody had to be fit. There was a decade of sitcoms where everyone was beautiful. Oh, yeah, everybody, even the neighbor next door was beautiful. Friends wrecked comedy, they wrecked the sitcom. Yeah, yeah. they're not. They're not to blame, but all these network people went, do you mean that we could get our people on Entertainment Tonight and Inside Edition and all these E types of channels all the time because they want to see beautiful people and they'll be in the magazines? And it that's where alternative comedy really helped the sitcom. Yeah. Because you, not everybody had to be beautiful on shows all of a sudden it was more funny again. Yeah. It was about real people. Beautiful people generally don't aren't funny. They sure. haven't gone through they the didn't game. have to be. <laughs> they didn't have you're right. I can remember judging a open mic contest and before the show, this young guy, he's a pretty good looking guy, he says to another guy, he's like, Hey, you remember so-and-so? He was about 21, 22. And, and the guy's like, yeah, what's up? He's like, 
I slept with her last night. He's like, you slept with the homecoming queen? And, um, you know, it was crass. But I told the guy, my comment wasn't crass. I'm like, hey, man, I haven't seen you do stand-up, but I heard your story. I will not be voting for you. I'm just telling you ahead of time. No comedian ever has slept with the homecoming queen. That was any good. Unless it was the homecoming queen after a 25-year reunion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because then all of a sudden, she her standards were lower and she became more interesting. But no guy at 22 sleeps with the homecoming queen. And his buddy was laughing. He's like, are you joking with me? Like, I'm totally serious. This is an open mic judgeship here. There are no ethics. I don't care. There's nothing. Yeah. I'm just telling you, you will not win. <laughs> you do not. And he wasn't bad. He yeah. wasn't good, but he wasn't bad. But I, I, there was there, there were points that were taken off. He had, he had went out of his lane in comedy. <laughs> so, but the, the moral to this, this story, the LA was, I turned down the opportunity that I maybe would have had a chance. Probably, I probably would have just moved out there and wrecked my marriage and uh, not had a good relationship with my kids or whatever. Yeah. I had to make a choice because um, I don't think my wife would have wanted to move out there. So it would have been one of these, you know, one of us stays here, one of us stays there. Um, and at the time, um, the comedy was in a very superficial place, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, it really was the pretty time of comedy. If you want to look at the pretty time of comedy, it was then. It was everybody. It was Dane Cook. It was... Daniel Tosh, it was guys and, and women too that looked like sure. rock stars that were getting shows. And uh, I, I'm glad that I don't see that as much now. I feel like the, most of the best shows, dramas or that's what you ever watch. When's the last time you've watched Isaac a show and like a drama on NBC? When's the last time? I will sometimes come in the room and my wife will have like something like NCIS or one of those shows on. So I've right. seen pieces of, and I hate them all, like all those Chicago yeah. PD, hospital, like yeah. whatever. I, I've seen <clears throat> little bits of these shows. There, <clears throat> I had, I was with my wife. We were visiting her family in Baltimore area suburbs and they were, you know, they're older people and they're watching Chicago, whatever this show was. And everybody was just strikingly beautiful. Oh yeah. And they were all cops, but they were Mm. strikingly beautiful. None of it made any sense in regards to their, they're just, and look, that's their entertainment. That's fine. I, I can't judge it, but it sucks. Oh yeah. It sucks. You know, you watched, the Wire or The Shield or any of those cop shows, even NYPD Blue, and they mix in some good-looking people with the uglies, mm-hmm. but it's the uglies that are driving it. Oh, yeah. The, the, the people that you're like, oh, that guy looks like a cop I know. <laughs> He's got some problems. Yeah. You know, and so that's where comedy kind of was then they, they found it that friends that decade past friends 
everybody was trying to find friends. I'm not saying friends is the worst show ever. It's definitely not, but never was like something that connected to me too much, but there's funny moments. Yeah. Um, they had but Lisa Kudrow and she is legitimately funny, but yes. Yeah. And, the, and, and she came from improv mm -hmm. at the groundlings. She might be the only one that did though. Probably. And uh, you know, it worked, it worked, but then everybody was trying to do that. Yeah. So that's when I went out there. If somebody would have offered me that in 1998, before my daughter was about to be born, I would have done cartwheels for it. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, so that's kind of, I was offered some local TV opportunity <clears throat> about six months ago. And I told a couple of people, like, oh my gosh, that's exciting. I'm like, ah, I feel like maybe I'm an obligation, like maybe I should do it, especially because of COVID and how it slowed things down. Right. But I'm thinking the whole time, I've spent my whole life escaping rush hour traffic <laughs> five days a week. Yep. And I would have been in the middle of it. And then it was like, quite frankly, the money was not very good. You'd think it was really good. And then a lot of people, once again, it's that supply and demand thing. Right. And so many other avenues, probably, you know, in 1985 when there was, you know, three local channels and they had an hour and a half of local news. Um, those people probably made a lot of money. Okay. Sure. I'm sure they, because they were the most famous people in the city. Um, now that's not the case. There's so much local news on TV in general that, um, you know, I, I, so I turned that job down because I'm like, I think I'd be miserable doing it. I told him I would do it for a year. Like I felt like I had to, if they met the price that I needed, mm -hmm. which was still lower than I wanted to do. And they were like, we're not sure about the price, but you're going to have, you're going to have to do it for two years. One with an option. I'm like, I know that's how your business works. I don't want to do that. That yeah. doesn't sound. But I do have this new show that I'm doing, which it, it fits kind of my background in a way and the great part about it, it's a it's a sports football pregame show which there's no shortage of but football does seem to be the one thing ratings wise that continues to you know stay at least here if not actually go up that's right about it yeah on tv and there's all these gambling sites that bombard your news and your yeah. tv programming even when it's not sports because there's so much money. It's a land grab right now. There's so we had pitched this show, another guy in our Jason hammer, and we wanted it to be irreverent and we would uh, have mostly control over it and seemed fun. I, I did this pregame show for Fox and ESPN for 13 years and I had no control over anything. You know, I was doing it from, you know, Indianapolis or Fishers. Yeah. So why would I expect to be able to have any control? But I, I didn't have any control over anything that, you know, happened with it. I would just send them in my sketches, my ideas, my jokes. They would tell me where they wanted me to write and I would spend the week writing on it. And it was a good job in a way. It paid okay. But 
you know, I had no control over any of it. And mm-hmm. this, you know, it's kind of like doing a podcast or doing your own, um, you know, funny videos that you place up online. Um, you got to take that moment and enjoy that fun of it. You know, if you yeah. think it's going to make, I'm already worried it's going to pay me a lot or I'm going to um, have a lot of, um, there's going to be a lot of future, you know, opportunities out of it. You can't, you really can't go into it. It's, it's really cool that we are living in a time where you have an opportunity to do something. You have control over a little bit of what you do because mm-hmm. my experience even though it was in sports, it was with Fox and there were people that were in the entertainment side that were part of that show. And it was the number one show all day on Sundays, day or night, the one with Terry Bradshaw and all mm-hmm. that. And so it was a big operation. They made more money off of that show than they actually made off the NFL. So um, what I would tell you about that is, is that you don't have any control until you eventually reach a level where you do. And it's being a stand-up comedian. I always had total control over what I wanted to do. I love that. That's the great thing of, that's the best part of stand-up is the, I get to perform um, and do my thing. I have control over what jokes I want to tell or what stories I want to share and how I want to share them and I don't have a director and I don't have anybody getting in my way. And it's, it's a very freeing thing to get to do. It's uh, it can be scary, but it's exciting. Uh, but since you have all that freedom then you also have to learn, okay, where can I take that? What I'm good at in this and find audiences that I can make a living doing. And right. do I get to have total freedom all the time? I do not. I do not. I, in probably 2000, used to have total freedom. Sure. Uh, most comedians had total freedom. And that's why a lot of comedians that are my age are angry about it because they don't have total freedom anymore, especially if they're more famous. And it's like, oh, you take, you know, Doug Stanhope has total freedom. Right. Yeah. Because he doesn't take the man's money. But, you know, he lives in shithole Arizona, (laughs) you know, Uh, but you know what? A lot of days he's probably happier than the guy that uh, did the show with him, the man show that replaced, you know, he and Rogan were together. Yep. Rogan, uh, he has a lot of freedom, too, by the way. But, you know, I I don't know if he has a day off. He does. That doesn't seem fun. Yeah. No. That. That, that part is so, you know, without getting into the politics of it, just having, having the freedom to do something you like, um, there are responsibilities to that, though. Mm-hmm. And the responsibilities are not like that story that somebody wrote six months ago about comedians got to quit working so hard. And, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, just feel a little looser and don't put pressure on yourself and everything. Um, yeah, I don't see that working. I just, I just don't, um, you gotta have a kind of a, a will to push and always be looking around the corner. Like when, 
when I asked you about your favorite performers, if you were to ask me, my favorite stand-ups were, you know, George Carlin was the reason I got into comedy because yeah. he was like the best observational comic, but then also he probably, you know, where do you think, you know, did, did Seinfeld ever write as something as good as a place for your stuff? Probably not. No. You know, some of that stuff, he, people don't even realize. They just think of Angry George at the end. Mm -hmm. But Angry George is brilliant too. So for him to be able to write all those things, but my entertainment uh, idols ch changed. All of a sudden, my, my entertainment idols were like David Bowie and Madonna and people like that that reinvented themselves into different places as their career went. Yeah. So they never felt too out of fashion and people kept... Uh, being interested in them. So that's kind of been my mode for the last probably 10 to 12 years is, hey, let's try this. Let's try that. Early on when podcasts came out, um, I didn't want to just, like I like you said, you've interviewed all kinds of different people, not just comedians, yeah. funny people. Um you know, I did a podcast where I interviewed all the people that were successful, like, or sort of successful in Indianapolis, just because I wanted to understand what that was like. But then let's make them entertaining and funny. Let's try. Mm -hmm. um, that was a good idea. That one worked. Some of my other ones haven't. Um, but I'm always like trying. I feel like that's such an awesome. I love the buzz of creativity. You do too. Oh, I yeah. Can, you've done that's what's kept you going mm -hmm. into this you know abyss yeah yeah man well <laughs> and that's you talk about like doing things for the passion of doing them and that sort mm -hmm. of thing and it's so important because that freedom like you know i can say in my 20 years in comedy i haven't had the commercial success that a lot of my peers have had i haven't had the financial success that a lot of my peers have had but I've always gotten to be in control of what I'm doing ah. and got to make choices. And, you know, even before when I was talking about making choices about clubs or whatever, like understanding, well, I'd rather not change what I'm doing for that reason or whatever. Right. With you, the one thing that I, I really respect about the choices you made for family, and I'll even touch on that, that, uh, that article about the hustle culture, don't work so hard. I agree you have to hustle. You have to bust your ass in this industry. There's nothing wrong with we could all use a little more mental health breaks and we could yeah. change our parameters a little bit. I know I could benefit from it to have one non-hustle day a week would be nice. Yeah. And you made that choice. I mean, you are always hustling, but you've made the choice about where that energy is going. You could have gone to LA, but there are really... I, you know, I'm new out here and I'm learning, but I'm watching and there are two types of people that aren't young in the inner, in this industry. There are people who got in somewhere and work professionally in Los Angeles, voiceover right. artist, actor, writer, whatever they're doing, and right. they're making a living at their craft. This is where industry is. But there's also the people who it's not quite ever happened for. They're still chasing it. They make no money living here. They pay a shitload of money to live here. And then yeah. they go back and work the same clubs they could have been working if they just stayed in Minnesota. 
Yeah, it's well, it I don't know if I would have, I'm guessing I would have taken the swing if I didn't have the particular parameters that kept me at home more. Sure. Needed to keep, you know, I needed with a child with my daughters on the autism spectrum and Maddie and it, it's, it's not a good circumstance for her to live in certain places. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely needed a um, support group. Like if grandma and grandpa needed to be there while I'm Mm -hmm. out on the road, they could help, you know, with that because there's no money to hire babysitters or anything like that. And who could you hire? That's the thing. Well, take a night off. You and your wife should do that. No, it has to be specialized. Well, who the fuck am I? Who's the fuck am my wife going to trust? Yeah. Didn't trust anybody besides me and, and her and, and sometimes her parents. And that's about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so um, now that she's 18, it's a little better, but I mean, you know, that just, it changes your perspective. And I could have gone into it in a negative way, but instead I kind of, I saw the positive changes it was doing for me. I grew up with a very volatile dad. It's, you know, you would, I've told people, not everybody that's a good comedian had a bad childhood, but um, I do resent those people that didn't. <laughs> and uh, I would tell you also in regards to me that it was definitely a circumstance of, it was like a perfect laboratory to create a comedian. Yeah. My dad was so abusive and crazy that um, it, my friend, April Macy, who was beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, and, I would, I was very like, like, I can't imagine she'd be very funny. I just, when I first worked with her one time in India, I'm like, ah, she yeah. probably just looks too good on the poster. And then I'm hearing the stories about how absolutely messed up her family was. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. You've earned it. You, you belong here. You're in the right place. You know, um, you, you don't get both. You know, you should go into real estate. If you had a good childhood yeah. and, <laughs> and pretty. So, um, you know, it, it, so yeah, it's been a real focus of mine to be, you know, provide a good atmosphere, especially for her, mm-hmm. um, and taking the man's money, like corporate shows, yeah, <clears throat> which I could not do well at all. I faked it whenever anybody offered me to do it. My first fifteen years of my career, I. Yeah. My brain never thought funny, clean. It was always dirty or edgy or something. That's the only thing that made me laugh. You heard who my my favorites and influences were yeah. as comedians. They were not corporate comedians. Right. Um, but after I wrote the act about talking about my daughter and my having twins at 41 years old, then it made more sense. I had never even talked about being married in my show. It yeah. Didn't, didn't fit. Um, that's when I decided that, wow, you know what? Um, if I can make a lot of money doing one show and stay home a lot more and be able to do this, that's like a really good idea. And I had a couple of friends that were in that world and they were like, why would you, why would you drive all week 
to go do triple shows in Montana and Wyoming and, you know, um, you know, Idaho do four shows for 800 bucks. Why would you do that? Yeah. I'm like, well, you know, I'm selling enough t-shirts, you know, and it's like, you know, it's, it's all like, I mean, I know it seems so hacky to other comedians that are younger. They're like, what the hell would you sell the t-shirts? Cause that was paying for a lot. Oh yeah. 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 That put money that put food on my tables yep. for a while, you know, cause the, the other part, it, it didn't, it didn't cover enough. So I don't know. I've just had this interesting career. I, I appreciate that part. I don't, take that for granted. Um, I had a, I was, I did pretty well with virtual shows. I had to relearn that. I mean, yeah. uh, this is a, uh, oh, it's backdrop. Yeah. <laughs> but I, like I invested in it. Looks good. Yeah. No, not like one of the fake ones where you're like popping out of oh, it. God. It's, I hate the green this, screen thing. No, you don't, you don't want a green screen. Don't, don't use green screens, people do what (laughs) Isaac's doing. Or if you're doing a lot of them, maybe spend some money on something like that, get some good lighting, whatever. Yeah. Um, But those shows, I needed the money. Um, I knew I would do them better than most, but very stressful, very stressful the whole time I would, beyond because it's it's a different it's a different profession it's more like this if you can Mm -hmm. do this pretty well that helps you do that i will say sure Um, you know have some experience having a conversation with people um don't talk at them the whole time kind of talk with them uh you know it just I figure I still got to do this 10 more years, Isaac, at least. And I'm yeah. 55 years old, man. Yeah. That's crazy. There's yeah. no history of 60 something <laughs> people out there that aren't, you know, in, as, as comedians that are not famous. There's just no history of it. It's just weird. I mean, who? You know? uh, I mean, it's Is a the, hard, it's a hard life. So if, if that has, be- if the road's been your life, you, you probably didn't make it to 65. <laughs> That's uh there's a lot of truth to that. Probably. Um, I found that when you drive to a show, somehow my Alexa found that. <laughs> I don't know what word. That's weird of this whole conversation. Just that, 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 did you hear what she said? I don't, I, have, I don't an have an answer. answer. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Neither do we Alexa. <laughs> Very intuitive. <laughs> the Alexa, do not underrate the intuitive skills of Alexa. There really isn't an answer for this. I, I, when I drive to a show that pays me pretty well, and when I show up to a corporate event, here's the weird thing. I get treated like I'm a superstar. Oh, yeah. It's very weird. See, spending 20 years playing all the clubs, the improvs, and the funny bones, especially those. And I would be one of the four weeks of, Hey, this guy's not famous, but <laughs> it's an off week. It's a holiday week. Yeah. Here's that person. We know they'll do really well with the audience, but you don't, you, you, you're always the, Oh yeah, this is the week that 
nobody knows who it is. Mm-hmm. When you're that person, you don't get a big head over anything <laughs> in regards to this. So then when you go to some accountants conference and you're like, what a drag this is going to be. And they're like, oh yeah, they're paying me more than what I made at the improv headline for the week. And they're giving me a nice dinner and they're very excited to meet me. Yeah. Uh, You know, like when you go to a party, like uh, maybe it's, you would go to a party that your wife's friends had, not your entertainment Right. But you would go to like a party like that. And all of a sudden, well, Isaac, he's a comedian. He does acting and you've probably seen his sketch. You know, he's, he's does sketches and people are like, Oh my gosh, really? This is the person I want to talk to. You're very interesting. And uh, you are, you are the most interesting person there, but it's like, that doesn't really pay. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really pay you anything. Um, you know, it's just this weird, it's this weird thing, but I don't, I really am not down on it and I'm not down on I'm like the thing that you got to do that I didn't. And I, and I feel a little jealous of, um, but there are plenty of times when I didn't where I'm like old and I really felt like the last thing I want to do is go to the white rabbit to some open mic. Sure. Cause I, I'm old and I'm tired yeah. and I, and I've had 10 events that I have to go to for my kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I just, that if I didn't get paid, I really wasn't going, sure. just, but that kept me, you know, that kept me as someone who is not part of the scene. And I, I, you know, 15 years ago, I was part of the scene, Yeah, you know, I was part of the scene, that whole crew, you know, and kind of had been, um, helped a lot of people up till about 10 years ago. And then it's just like, I stopped being part of it. So I can't be mad at other comedians that are open micers that either don't know who I am or, or and they're, they might be paid comics, but they're younger and they're, they don't know who I am or um, what I've, you know, that I've been on the stage more than anybody in Crackers, probably history. What, why do they know? Why do they care? I yeah. can't go in there like, you need to respect me and you where all these young comics they see you as this kind of sensei and someone who has helped them i have it i'm not there so i feel some a little jealousy and a little guilt about it because i did come into this i did i always liked helping comics a lot of the comics that came out in the 2000s from indianapolis I brought on the road sure. with me. and, you know, the Jeff Oskays and the Matt, Alana Martins and, mm-hmm. you know, people like that, that, um, you know, I was a big fan of, I liked them as people. They were really quality comics and I was glad to help, but that changed with doing corporate events and stuff. You no know, one, you don't bring somebody with you. Sure. It's just you. It's It's important for you to realize, though, that I just left two months ago, and by the end of the year, I'll be forgotten. It won't matter what I did there for 15 years or whatever, because every year there's a new batch of people and people leave. So when I started stand-up and started coming to Indianapolis, I didn't know who Jerry Goble was. 
Right. Because Jerry was on a hiatus during that exact period. He was. I didn't see him. I didn't know who he was. It wasn't until like six years later that when Jerry started coming out again that I heard his name and people started telling me about what he had been doing previously. And that's just the cycle we go in. If you yeah. come in, if you start doing stand-up in Indianapolis this year, I'm no longer a presence there. And you'll never know yeah, or care. You know, and that's so weird. You, that's great because I do think of you as the person that, you know, was that person that you created so much creativity. There were, when did you start at the White Rap? I went in there at the, basically the beginning of 2011 was my first show there. And that's right around the time that the scene started changing. Yeah. It did, you're part of it, big part of it. Um, Morty's was coming around the corner and that became a different model because instead of crackers where it was run by um, one lady, it was run by a couple comics. Yeah. And there was a very party comics pro mm -hmm. kind of scene, which was great that it never happened. Crackers, you know, and I, I've been public about it, even though I played crackers most of my career. Um, they've done shit for me. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Never, never got on the phone and said, Hey, uh, you know, Zanies in Nashville, you've got a comedian that you like down there that we're using. How about you use Scott? Mm -hmm. Go Bananas was famous for that for a long time. That yeah. they would, you know, work with uh, Acme in Minneapolis. And, and turned out great talent because of that nurturing atmosphere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. There was, you know, forever, there was, there was a five-year stretch where I was the only comedian that came out of Indianapolis that ended up touring. Probably mm -hmm. even longer. There was a guy named Todd Tony who started with me, and he was really good. He would have he probably was about 10 years too early for when he would have, he would have been perfect in the more alt scene, but he, uh, he and I started almost at the same time and we kind of had the same career path and he had drug issues ended up dying in a hotel room performing yeah. no bananas off of a heroin overdose. I mean, it's kind of a sad element of Indianapolis comedy, but he, we were kind of the two and there was nobody else for quite a while until Matt Holt came in and Jeff Bodart mm -hmm. at the end of like 2000s. So it was just one of these deals where there was just hardly anybody. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of comedians in all the cities. It was kind of like music where Indianapolis has done a shit job yeah. helping music. Yeah. I mean, think about what are the famous bands from Indianapolis? Why isn't there an Afghan wigs that came out of, of Indianapolis? Why isn't, yeah. you know, why is there's 30 bands from Minneapolis and the Y store here, you know, yeah. what, what Margo and that? the nuclear so-and-so's like had a, a, a bit of a splash there for a minute, but that's like, yeah. yeah. I mean, with a city yeah. with that many artists. Yeah. Yeah. It was never cultivated. Same with comedy. And then you throw in Bob and Tom is freaking here. Yeah. Nothing was happening and they didn't do anything either. Yeah. They didn't help. They didn't want to be seen as an Indianapolis place. 
don't bring up Indianapolis. That was what you were told. Yeah, that was that's always like obviously I have a ton of friends that work over there. And that's always been the the sticking point for me is that like I had that weird career where I worked at almost exclusively one venue right. ten times a month, and that isn't appealing to their market yeah. to for like promotion. And I, no. I understand it. I mean, it's 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 business. This is show business. It's fine, uh, but you know, uh, but it's a disappointment. It it is yeah. a disappointment that Indianapolis never called me. So 2011, you start things up and. When did you feel like you were really kind of humming at the white rabbit? When were you like? It probably like about three years in is when stuff yeah. really started clicking. When we started really getting audiences for comedy and started producing our own like alt shows and stuff outside right. of stand up, And then other comics started pitching shows. And that's where like the dating show came and Matt Holt started doing a storytelling. And so it was tough. I mean, I didn't have when I started, I was booking all the same comics I already knew. And I, I I remember at one point making the decision, Oh, I'm going to book a woman each show. There wasn't even enough women to have them once a month. And like, but by putting in the effort and pulling people from different cities, I made it happen. And then you saw that representation, how it helped it grow. And then there were women to book on the shows. So if anybody wants to, just jump in right here. This is the history of the Indianapolis comedy scene. And when it changed to becoming a more creative place, let's say it's 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It starts, you've got that going on. The comedy attic begins down in Bloomington where they are pushing. They become like go bananas. Yeah. Jared is very territorial and wants to push his comics out. Um, from there if they if they came from there he's pushing them out so there's that then there's morty's that happens and all of a sudden it's a little different but there's a real kind of we're part of a team when it comes to comedy versus crackers which was the classic um kind of brand name comedy club yeah didn't put a lot of effort into it And quite frankly, the one person that uh, only gets used and brought up in negative circles, Mike Gardner, was booked a lot of open mics around Mm -hmm. the city. And he would actually pay people at these open mics. Yeah. As crazy as that sounds. Yeah. And a lot of people have righteous reasons to not feel good about him. That all was going on and it really turned everything kind of upside down and made it a, a there was a scene within a couple of years mm-hmm. there was a scene and there had never been a scene before and what was unfortunate for me was um when the scene finally starts happening i can't be part of the scene i'm right. on the road all the time and the last thing i need to do is tell my wife hey uh, i've been gone four days a week we got your we got our special needs daughter and these two toddlers uh hey i'm gonna go down and do uh uh an open mic right right downtown on monday or tuesday yeah so i mean that that happened but i always felt i i didn't miss that part i never got to be part of hey we're a comedy we're part of a a, 
a conglomerate, I mean, a, a co-op. Right. Not, there's a, there was a comedy co-op there. I never grew up with any of that. Everybody I was tried to be nice to, and I tried to help some people, but it was very cutthroat because that was one job you weren't getting. I'm not saying that's all bad versus is the co-op doesn't have its problems too, but it's just a different mentality. And I I look at all of it and um, I'm just really happy though, overall that I continue to find ways to be creative and maybe get some money to do it. I, uh, this, you know, pandemic has only magnified that. Yeah. You know, I don't know how any comedians hardly made any money. As Brent Hewn says, him and toilet paper, they're the, the people that prospered during COVID. People are stuck yeah. on their phones watching Terhune's videos. That's about it. Uh, Scott, yeah. my bladder is telling me that it's time to wrap this interview. It should be. I went too long. Thanks. No, so for- we're all good, man. I appreciate it. Uh, what do you want to go ahead and plug whatever you want to right now? Um, you can go to Scott Comedy on Twitter or on um, uh, Instagram. My website, scottcomedy.com. And if you want to find me on Facebook, my um, my Facebook, um, if you look up Happy Mondays with Maddie, that's really kind of my main focus on Facebook. It's stuff I do, videos I do with my daughter. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's cool. Living in a kind of a weird life. I'm sure you are. I'm, I'm super excited and hoping the best for you out there. Oh, I appreciate that very much. I mean that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and best to you. And thank you very much for sitting down to do this. Yeah. And one last thing. Yeah. I you got nine or 10 months before people forgive you. <laughs> you're six. I think you're, you're really kind of too hard on yourself. But <laughs> definitely by 10 months, no one will ever remember you at all. Uh, <laughs> you have no chance. So you, maybe yeah. you, may, you need to make an appearance before that. Yeah. Just so people can remember you and then forget you again. Yeah, I'll come back at Christmas. Thanks, man. Bye.